Last time we were together, which was two weeks ago, we went through what book? Joel. Joel. Joel looked like this book. There it goes. Looked like that book. That's to remind you that the book of Joel uses this plague of locusts as symbolic, as a symbolic way of talking about the judgment of God. And... Uh, I'll give you the takeaways really quickly. You will not have time to write these down, but you can always find them online. But here were the takeaways from the book of Joel. God is in complete control of nature. Complete control of nature. There's a close relationship between all aspects of God's creation. If God's creation does well, we do well. If we don't do well, God's creation doesn't do well. It's all intertwined. And so... Everything affects everything. There's a symbiotic relationship, if you will. And so there's nothing you and I can do that doesn't affect something else. Someone else, something else on the planet, something of God's creation. We're all connected. Another takeaway, true repentance is deep. It's really not superficial. It's a, it's a deconstruction and a reconstruction of your heart first which then leaches out into your behavior. So often we try to change our behaviors first. And uh, true repentance changes the heart first. Another takeaway, God's reputation calls us to repentance, but not ruin. If you're not convinced that God is good, if you're not convinced that, that all his ways towards us are pure and right and healthy and good and encouraging, then it's easy to believe that God is just out to trip us up just to watch us fall, just to make it harder for us. But his reputation says that when he calls us, he calls us to repentance and not ruin. So when tough things happen, they're called to repentance, not to destroy us. Repentance must proceed revival. You cannot have revival in your life apart from repentance. Uh, that's like heading east on I-20 going to Atlanta. You know, you're going to have to turn around first before you can get to Atlanta. And repentance must happen first before revival. Another takeaway, God has gone out of his way, even to the point of sending his own son to take up residence in our lives so that he can bring us to repentance and renewal. He's gone above and beyond overboard, out of his way to reach us, to get us to repent and be renewed. One last takeaway. Despite God's love, despite his grace, despite his mercy, he will bring judgment on all who refuse to repent and turn to him. And when that happens, God doesn't do it to us. We do it to ourselves. We do it to ourselves. And so, And so we really need to take note of when we think God's doing something to us and stop and say, did I do this? It's just easier to blame somebody else. It's been that way since the Garden of Eden. So those were the takeaways from the book of Joel. Tonight, we start this book. Amos. 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 What is the book of Amos about? You notice that the moose is holding a plumb line. A plumb line. That is mentioned in the book of Amos. It's kind of central in the book of Amos. What do you use a plumb line for? 
Don't say fishing for plums. Pardon? Setting a cornerstone. Keeping things straight. Keeping things right. You know, use it on a wall so that when you're finished building the wall, it's not leaning. It's upright. You, that's what you use a plumb line for. It works off of the gravity and keeps everything straight. And you measure everything off the plumb line. And so in the book of Amos, the whole thing is about whether Israel matches up with the plumb line of God's word. Of the plumb line of what God's told them to do. Do they match up with that or not? That's why that picture there is to remind you of the book of Amos. So let's talk a little bit about the prophet Amos. The prophet Amos, we don't know a whole lot about the prophet Amos. We, all we know is what's in the book here. And there's not a whole lot in the book there. Uh, we know he's a contemporary of Hosea, Isaiah, probably Micah. So he fits in that kind of time frame. He probably, of all those prophets, he's probably the first prophet who had his stuff collected and written down and put out. So he may be one of the first of the writing prophets. His name means either burdensome or burden bearer. And both fit. Both fit to the people he was prophesying to. He was burdensome. Matter of fact, they, they basically told him, you got to go. You got to leave. You got to get out of Dodge. But when it comes to him and his relationship with God, he was bearing the burden of trying to see God's people turn. And so name is appropriate both ways. Amos was a common man. Now, some of our prophets have been related to royalty. Some of our prophets have been related to the priesthood. Some of our prophets have been very well educated. But Amos is a very, very common man. He's not a priest. He's not royal family. He's a sheep herder and a tender of figs, a farmer, if you will. Look at, uh, look at chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, notice it's spelled different than the Tekoa in North Georgia, right? But he's a shepherd of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. That would have been Jeroboam II, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. We do not know anything about the earthquake other than it must have been a pretty major event for it to be referenced here as putting it on the timeline. So we know that he's part of the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, if you'll flip over to chapter 7 and look at verse 14 and 15, this will give you just a few bit, a little bit more nuggets about Amos. 7 verse 14, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from, the fo from following the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So this is really all we know about Amos, which is not much. Let's look at, see, let's look at the context for the book of Amos. Let's look at the book of Amos. Here's the context. Amos, like I said, he was a country boy. He, he lived on the farm, if you will. But yet God called him. He was a country boy in the northern kingdom of Judah, just across the border from the southern, uh, from the, excuse me, back up. 
He was a prophet who lived in the hill country of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he lived right across the border of the northern kingdom of Israel. And remember, if you go back after the death of Solomon, the kingdom split. And a lot of that was because of Solomon's son. But the kingdom split. And then you had a northern kingdom with ten tribes of Judah, or ten tribes of Israel. And then the remaining two tribes stayed in the south around Jerusalem. And they were the southern kingdom of Judah. So Amos was in the southern kingdom of, of Judah, but he was called to go across the line, across the territory, across the river, if you will, and prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. So this country boy goes, and, 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 and this country boy not only goes into the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, but he goes to the metropolitan city of Bethel. So he's, it's, it's like country bumpkin goes to the big city. And, and he goes to Bethel where there's all kinds of things going on in Bethel. Uh, the kingdom of Israel is enjoying, during the time of this writing, they're enjoying much peace and much prosperity. A lot of peace, a lot of prosperity, but with it was coming some other things too. There was a wide economic gap between the rich and the poor. At this time, uh, there was excessive indulgence of the rich. The rich were really rich. They had lots of stuff, stuff they didn't need. They were excessive while the poor had nothing. The rich were oppressing the poor, even to the point of buying them as slaves and then never releasing them. So there was this kind of indentured servitude that just wound up being slavery. That was going on in the time. A lot of social injustice. There was a lot of spiritual laziness. There was a lot of religious ritual without any heart, just kind of going through the motions. So they come to church, if you will, and look good and say all the right things and pray all the right prayers. And then the rest of the week, they were unethical and, and, and just rotten. This was the kingdom of Israel in this time. Um, and so God sends this rural farmer and shepherd into this another territory to address these issues. So let me give you an outline, just a four-point outline for the book of Amos. starts with the destruction of the surrounding nations, the nations surrounding Israel. So the first two chapters are about that. Then the next four chapters, three, five, four, five, six, the next four chapters are about the destruction of Israel. And right there, that tells you something. It takes two chapters to talk about the destruction of the surrounding nations, but they take four chapters to talk about the destruction of Israel. Then there's these visions and these warnings of what's coming to Israel. And then at the very end, in the last few verses, you have this future restoration. And I have messed up the reference for you right there, evidently. Uh, that last reference for the future restoration is chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. I'll fix that before it goes up on, online. So if you look at it, it should be right then. So this is the outline we're going to work off of. And we're going to try to make it through the book of Amos tonight. We just kind of need to do that. And so here we go. Let's talk about the destruction of the surrounding nations. When you begin reading Amos chapter 1, verse 3. 
The text follows what seems to be something really repetitive and boring. When you jump in at verse 3 of chapter 1 and start reading, it just seems monotonous and repetitive and boring. I'll give you an example. Let's look at chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the household of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad and I will break the gates of Damascus, the the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants of the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Bethanim, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr. Okay? So, so it starts off with this, the nation of Damascus. And then it moves to Gaza. And then it moves to Tyre. And it moves to Edom. And the, the pattern in these are all the same. It starts off for three transgressions of this nation. And for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And then there's the word because... Here's why I won't revoke it. And then there's this word, so I will send fire. That gets repeated with every nation. Every nation you hear, for three transgressions of this nation, for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they have done such and such, so I will send fire. Over and over and over again. Uh, But though this seems repetitive, it's brilliant. It really is brilliant. It might not mean that much to us until you look at a map. And when you look at the map, here's what Amos is doing. He starts with the furthest most nations. If, if Israel was like the center of, this, of the cosmos, if you will, he starts with these nations way out here. And he starts saying, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring judgment on these nations. I'm going to bring fire on these nations. And Israel was going, yeah, go get them. They're our enemies. Take care of them. But then as Amos goes down, the circle starts to constrict. And the nations that get condemned get closer and closer to Israel. And then all of a sudden, it's talking about their neighbor, Judah. And so what God has done is he gets their their attention. I'm going to punish these nations out here. And and now you got my attention because they're my enemy. But the more I listen, the more you're drawing it closer and closer to me. It would be like God coming here and saying, you know what? I'm going to bring destruction on the heathen nation of Russia because they've done this, this, and this, and this. So I'm going to send fire. And some of us will be going, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then God says, not only that, I'm going to do the same thing to the nation of Iran. And some of us would be going, yeah, yeah. And then God says, not only that, I'm going to do the same thing to the United Kingdom. And we'd start going, hmm, now I'm a little uncomfortable. And then on top of that, I'm going to do the same thing to Canada. Now I'm getting really uncomfortable. Because it looks like it's coming towards me. This is exactly what Amos is doing. It's just brilliant how he does that. You know, have you ever needed to discipline one of your children and you started off by saying, this is what I'm going to do to your sibling. 
<laughs> and they go, yes, get them. And by the way, this is what you're getting. You know, this is kind of what Amos, what God is doing through Amos. It's, it's a tool to capture Israel's attention. So that, we, and we won't read all of those two chapters, but this is the destruction of the nation surrounding Israel. But when you hit chapter 3, then it starts focusing on Israel. Read chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 2. We start in chapter 2, verse 6. All of a sudden, now he's just finished talking about Judah. The formula is the same. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because, here's why, they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Verse 5, so I will send fire. Keeps talking about I will send fire. I will send fire. And now Amos, this farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah, is talking to Israel, and he says, For three transgressions of Israel, verse 6, and for four, I will not revoke pun the punishment. I will not revoke the punishment. Because, here's why God's bringing punishment on Israel. They sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside the altar on garments taken in pledges. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And then he says, and yet it was I who destroyed the Ammonites before them whose height was like the height of the cedars and who were as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. In other words, God's saying, here's what you're doing. You're mistreating the poor. You're mishandling your wealth. You're, you're, you're turning aside the needy. You're, you're sexually immoral. A, a son and a father go after the same woman. You're, you're doing all these things as if you're captains of your own destiny, as if you delivered yourself from all this and brought all this prosperity on yourself. And God says, but you've gotten cocky. Have you forgotten that I was the one who destroyed the Ammonites? And, and he goes on saying, don't you realize I did this? You didn't do this. Your success is not because of you. Your wealth is not because of you. Your ease and your pleasure is not because of you. It's because of me. And, and so, do you hear any similarities in our day here in Amos? Because always remember, we're reading the context of history, but history applies to us too. Hear any similarities? I'll wait. Really, you guys watch the news every evening, talk back to your TVs, and you don't see any similarities? Really? About the social and the economic injustice. The big gap you hear about on the news between the wealthy and the poor. Isn't that happening today? The sexual immorality that's mentioned here. Isn't that going on today? Unethical business practices. That's happening. Arrogance of self-sufficiency. All of that 
that was happening there is happening here, which should make us extremely nervous. Because Scripture tells us that God is no respecter of persons. So that should make us nervous. If you go to the next four chapters, it itemizes the sins of Israel. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known. Hear that again. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So God says, I've chosen you. And chose, didn't choose tons of other people. I just chose you. Think of it as a wedding. Think of it as an engagement. Think of it as a husband and wife commitment and covenant. I chose you. You only have I known. Therefore, I will punish you. So Amos begins with a series of rhetorical questions. Questions that are not meant to be answered. They're not meant to be answered. They're meant to make a point. Look at verse 3. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? And the answer is, let me start again. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? And the answer is, no. Thank you. Yeah, it's really not that hard. I'm not trying to trip you up at all. Verse 4, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? The answer is, does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? I'm assuming the answer is no. I don't know about that one. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? No. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Trumpets were what were blown when there was attack coming. So the answer would be, no. Here's the kicker. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Dun, 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 dun. Amos, for, for being a farmer and a fig picker, was brilliant. He really was. He had this way of capturing your attention and suckering you in until all of a sudden you were stepping on the landmine. And, and you couldn't get out of it. It was great. It was brilliant stuff. And then he reminds him, verse 7, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. In other words, God's saying, hey, I haven't acted suddenly. I haven't acted impulsively. I haven't pulled the rug out from underneath you. I've not changed the game plan. I've been telling you this over and over and over. Why, why would you act so surprised? And, and, and we say the same thing. We can really get really haughty in reading this and say, yeah, look at all these prophets. I, I can't believe they were that dumb to not get it. But what has God been telling you and me over and over and over that we still just haven't latched on to? And all of us have something he speaks to us over and over and over about. And we act like... It's not going to happen. It's not that big a deal. And so God is basically telling him, this is why my judgment is coming. You know, he clearly outlines 
why it's coming. When, when my children were little and they were going to get a spanking, and yes, I spanked my children, and my mother would tell you I was not spanked enough, all right? So when, when, when there was an infraction or, or whatever and they were going to get a spanking, I would always set them down first and explain to them why they were getting a spanking. I'd like to tell you that it was because I was a really good parent, but I just kind of like to see them squirm a little bit and just drag it out just a little bit. And so here's why you're getting the spanking. Do you understand? And then they would get the spanking, which was really incredulous to them because they thought if they were repentant and cried enough when I was telling them why they were going to get one, they wouldn't get one, right? But they would get one. And then when they got done getting one, I would say, now do you know why you got this? In other words, I was not trying to do some kind of secret handshake on them or trip them up or surprise them or anything. And this is what God is saying here. Look at verse uh, 13 of chapter 3. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altars shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike, listen to it, I will strike the winter house with the summer house, and the house of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come. Remember I talked to you about this opulent living of the wealthy in, uh, I mean, they had winter house, a summer house. Uh, they had stuff. And, and God's basically saying, it's all going down. I love the next one, ver chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this, you cows of Bashan. How'd you, like to start? How'd you like to come in on Sunday morning ready to hear a great inspirational message and that's how the pastor leads off? And, and basically what he was nailing them for was their laziness and, and their consumption. And, and he said, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. So he's not just calling everyone cows of Bashan. He's calling the ladies cows of Bashan, which makes you lose even more points when you do that. When they, take, when they shall take you away with hooks. The Assyrians are coming, just like the Babylonians came for the southern kingdom. The Assyrians are coming for the northern kingdom, and they will lead them away with hooks. And so God is telling them, I'm, I'm up front. Here's what's happened. Here's why you're going to get punished. And here's how you're going to get punished. And uh, God clearly outlines the punishment to come. And then God goes through all the ways that he's tried to get their attention. Both good and bad. But they still wouldn't turn. So when you kind of skim through chapter 4, you see things like this. You see, uh, I gave you cleanness of teeth, which is an interesting way of saying it. I took care of your health. I give you cleanness of teeth. For someone that's getting ready to look at a dental implant in the next few days, that one makes sense to me. Uh, yet you did not return to me. And so I withheld rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. And I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. He's basically saying, here's the ways I've been trying to get your attention. Yet, you did not return to me. 
I struck you with blight and mildew, verse 9, and many gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees and the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me. Hear the repetition? This is one thing that Amos uses is this kind of repeating refrain. It's kind of like the, the chorus in a song that just keeps coming back and singing over and over again. He uses these repeating refrains. Verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Just like the plagues I brought in Egypt, I sent stuff to you. I killed your young men with the sword. I carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet, you did not return to me. Notice God saying, I didn't do this for fun. I did this to try to get your attention. And yet, you just ignored it. So, he goes through all the ways he's tried to get their attention. Uh, so, in chapter 5, God pleads with the Israelites. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. Seek me and live. Look again in verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. Look at verse 14. Seek good and not evil. He's pleading with them to turn and seek him first. But they continue to disregard him. I mean, it's just like the same song, second verse. It's over and over and over. They mistreat the poor. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. Therefore, because you trampled on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, and you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. In other words, you built this opulent house, and you didn't even plan to live in it. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. God's basically saying, you were, you were so opulent, you had stuff you didn't need, and now I'm going to come and take it away from you, and you'll never get it. That bugs me because we are an opulent nation. We are an opulent nation. I have, let's see, one, two, three. I have at least three or four cameras. You know how many of those I can use at one time? You know? One. You know how many I use most of the time? One. We are an opulent nation, and, and, and this strikes really close to home. Have all these excesses and, of possession. There's bribes. Look at verse 12. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sin. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe. Then look at next, who turn aside the needy. And then he talks about their rituals. Go over to around verse 20, 21. I hate, I despise your feast. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps. I will not listen. And I just have to tell you this was written before contemporary worship. You know? So you can have the most beautiful music and to him it can be noisy. Why? Why? 
I'm sorry, I'm not letting you off the hook for this one. Why? Hmm? It's what's in the heart. Jesus said, those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. Does that say anything about rituals? Does it say anything about music? Does it say anything about how you dress? Does it even say anything about what day of the week? No. Not that any of those things are bad. But when we rest on those things, rather than the heart, we are hypocritical. We're the stench in God's nostrils. And you know what I'm talking about. You've come to church on Sunday and didn't feel like being here and didn't want to be here. And yet you greeted people with a big old smile like you. This is the happiest place next to Disney. You know? You've sung songs and prayed prayers in church service and looked good doing it. But your heart was down at Denny's or somewhere. You know? And, and God says, this is what's going on in Israel. This is God's going on in Israel. And so, here's what God does. He tells them what he most desires. Look at chapter 5, verse 24. God says, this is what I desire. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an even ever-flowing stream. God's saying, this is what I want from you. I want you to pay attention and flow with righteousness and flow with justice. It's an interesting thing. You know, if, can you think of how many other things God could have put in here when he said, hey, here's what I want from you. He could have brought all kinds of things in here. He decided to stick with righteousness and justice. This is what he requires of us, righteousness and justice. Do you think it's applicable for us today? <laughs> yeah, somebody answer so we'll move on. It is. Yeah, it was a simple yes or no, too. That's an easy question. Uh, it is. We, we really, like I said, all you have to do is turn on your TV. And everybody's clamoring for justice. And everybody wants things to be right. But aren't we as God's people the people to bring that about? I mean, we serve the God of righteousness and of justice. We have the spirit of righteousness and justice. Shouldn't we be the ones blazing the trail here? And that's what God is saying to Israel. You should be blazing the trail here. I called you out. I picked Abraham. I started the nation from him. I brought you out of Egypt. You should be blazing the trail. And instead, he's talking about bringing fire on them. But it's not going to happen. This is what he wants from them, for righteousness and justice to flow. And, and that should start in your personal life, and it should happen in your family life, and it should happen in your community, and that should just keep going out. It's amazing how we can do wonderful things outside of here and then we get home and we don't do it. You know where I'm the worst counselor? At home. At home. 
I, you know, I can tell everybody in my office exactly what they need to do, and I can go home and violate that left and right. It's got to start here and then move out from here. And so this is what God is telling us. This is us. That's what scares me. This is us. Look at verse, uh, chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. You could change Zion to say, woe to those who are at ease at Warren. Woe to those who are at ease in Augusta. Woe to those who are at ease anywhere. Look at verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lamb from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall and who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent them for themselves instruments of music who drink wine, not in glasses, not in goblets, in bowls. In bowls. Can you imagine going out to the restaurant and hearing the table next to you, because I'm sure it wouldn't be you, but hearing the table next to you say, would you like your wine in a glass or a bowl? I'll take a bowl, please. He's, he's getting at the opulence again. But, and they do all these things, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph, which is another way of saying they're not grieved over the nation of Israel. They're not grieved over the nation of Judah. So, so basically their whole focus has been on them and what they get and what they consume and how much they can consume, but they're not grieved over what God's grieved over. They grieve when they don't have what they want or as much as they want, but they're not grieved over what God is grieved over. And again, this spooks me because this is us. This really is us. Okay. So, let's go to the third part of this outline, the visions and the warnings. In this section, it starts off with God giving Amos some visions about what he's going to do. First, he gives Amos a vision of preparing a judgment of locusts. So, he uses this vision of locusts coming in and consuming things as a vision of what God's going to do in Israel. Then, he gives Amos this vision that he's preparing this judgment of fire. And uh, in that day, fire was extremely threatening. It could wipe everything out. There were no fire alarms. There were no fire departments and no fire trucks and no ready water available. And, and so a fire would be completely devastating. And he gives Amos this vision of this fire that's coming. And, and, and in each of these visions, Amos intercedes for the people and God relents. It, you can see it in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 1. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And then he says, O Lord God, please forgive. Verse 2. Then verse 3, the Lord relented concerning this. Then it happens again with this vision of fire. The Lord was calling for a judgment by fire. Verse 4. Go to verse 6. The Lord relented concerning this. Why? Because he prayed, O Lord God, please cease. So you have two visions. Both is a vision of how God's going to destroy things. Amos pleads to God. God relents. But the third vision is different. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. 
This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. Remember the moose with the plumb line? With a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, I see a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. And I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So basically he's saying, I'm putting a plumb line out and they do not measure up. They're not straight. And I've sent all the prophets I'm going to and, and we're going to fix this. And so God says he's going to bring judgment on the house of Jeroboam who was the king in Israel at that time. And so these visions upset people because people don't like the truth a lot of times, and these visions upset them. And so the king and the priest, the priest calls for Amos, and he's hauled in in front of the priest. Look at verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear his words. Hear that? The land is not able to bear his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. In other words, go home. We don't want you here. Go back to Judah. Look at verse 14. Namus answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. In other words, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't go looking for this job. I'm not trying to climb the ladder. This was not my intention, but, verse 15, the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, talking to the priest, therefore, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. And your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Didn't mince words, this shepherd, this country boy. He didn't miss words at all. He said, God's trying to tell you something, and you keep telling him, go away. So here's what's going to happen. Again, I go back to that, what's God trying to tell you over and over and over? And you keep kind of pushing it out and making it go away. God says, evidently, this is the only way I can get their attention. Kind of makes me worried about what God would say for me. The only way to get my attention on that thing I keep shoving out of earsight, if you will. So there's two more visions given to Amos. The first is a vision of this ripe summer fruit. And it's kind of a play on words because the word for summer fruit sounds like the word uh, to end. They sound, they're, they're very much similar. And so if you look in chapter 8, verse 2, 
This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said to Amos, what do you see? And I see a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people of Israel. I'm going to pick them. It's, it, it's the end, summer fruit, end. They're the same word, basically. And again, what are the reasons? You can see them down here. Verse 4, you trample on the needy and the poor and bring the poor of the land to an end. You can skip over to verse 5. You deal deceitfully with false balances. You buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. You sell chaff, the chaff of wheat. You, you sell useless stuff and act like it has great value. He's, this is why he's going to do this. And then he gives Amos one last vision, and it's a vision of God basically bringing down the temple at Bethel. And you can find that in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. He basically says, I'm going I'm to bring down the temple. So, so this is all really, really hard stuff. He's not mincing any words. He's not letting them off the hook. But as God typically does, we've seen God do this time and time again through the prophets. After using Amos to bring this great word of judgment, God never leaves his people without hope. Look at chapter 9. Look at verse 11. In that day, I will rise up the booth of David that has fallen, means the house of David, and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes shall uh, of treader of grapes him who sows the seed in other words God's saying your your crops are going to be so abundant you won't be able to get them in before it's time to plant the next one it's kind of a way of looking at that kind of like saying you can't spend all your money before there's the next paycheck that makes sense to us doesn't it this is what he's saying to them Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and the inhabitants and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. All those things that they were doing before, but they were doing opulently and without gratitude and without thinking of Christ and, and without thinking of God rather. Verse 15, I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted. So, you have God taking these people to the woodshed for eight and a half chapters, and then all of a sudden he says, and then I'm going to fix it all. Is he just schizophrenic or what? What is that about? And yes, it's your turn. Yeah, you would think, right? And, which was what God was trying to do all along. I mean, we, we saw last week in the book of Joel where God said, but yet, even now, even though you're on the brink, if just now you would turn, I would relent. So he is trying. Many of you had a loved one, a sibling, or a child who just wouldn't learn, who just wasn't teachable, who just refused to learn the easy way. What do you have to do? Let him fall. Let him fall. 
Now, when you let them fall, were you going to be there to pick them up? Absolutely. This is what God's doing. This is why, this is not schizophrenia. This is good parenting. Look, if you will not learn any other way, I'm going to let you fall. I'm going to let you crash hard, but I won't let you go. But you still need to turn. You still need to turn back. Okay, so this is the book of Amos in lightning round form. Let's give you, I'm going to give you three takeaways. Three takeaways, and then we'll be going before the fire alarm goes off again. <laughs> All right, first takeaway. Times of great ease and prosperity can create an environment that make it easy to fall away from God and start trusting in ourselves. I felt like that was almost too elementary to write because we all know that, but we act like it's not true. When things are going the best, we don't listen, we don't look, we don't learn, we don't seek after him. We think we got it. You know, I worry about that for a church like Warren because we know how to get things done. I mean, we, we really know how to make things happen if we want to. And it's really easy, just like it is for us as individuals, to just kind of rely on our own expertise. And so it's during these times of, of great ease and pleasure and possessions, when everything's going right, that's when it's easy to fall away from him, to forget him, to forget that actually he's the one that did this to start with and start thinking we did this, so we got this. No one's exempt from that. No one's exempt from that. I remember this week, got an email on my retirement funds. And yes, I'm nearing that age. And so I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, this is pretty good. This will, this will do. I think we can manage on this. Sure, I'm glad we stuck this away. Sure, I'm glad we... And all of a sudden, I had done all of this. It wasn't me. I could have easily been on my back somewhere unable to work. I could have easily been stupid and not listened to my wife when she said, we need to put this away. You know, I, I could have done all those things. It, it's really easy to kind of start taking on the credit yourself, and God has to get our attention. All right, soapbox that one enough. Let's go to the next one. It's always easier to see others how others are wrong and deserving of punishment than it is to see when we're wrong and deserving of punishment. Remember in the beginning of the book, I'm going to bring judgment on Damascus. Yes! I'm going to bring judgment on this nation. Yes! I'm going to bring judgment on this, and I'm going to bring judgment on you. What? It's always easier to see how other people are messing up and missing it than how we're messing up and missing this. This is our downfall because we cease to be humble. Pride goes before a fall, Scripture tells us. I was reading in the Gospels the other day and reading about Jesus and, and, and when the disciples come and say, hey, we want to sit on your right hand and we want to sit on your left. We want to be bigwigs in the kingdom. We want to we be up on the ladder. And Jesus said, you know, those that want to be first need to be last. 
And it dawned on me that, that humility takes us further than ambition. You know, humility takes us further than ambition. And so if we're not willing to see where we're wrong and how we've failed and, and, and deal with that and quit pointing at somebody else, half the time in my counseling office is spent refereeing people that say, well, yeah, I did this, but they did that. And they say, well, yeah, but the only reason I did that is because you did this. And off we go. And half of my time is spent trying to break up that cycle because it starts with humility, saying, you know what? I was wrong in this. I blew it. Got no excuse, got no rationale, got nothing. I just did it, and I need to fix it. So this is it. One last takeaway. We seek out many things in this life. But it's only when we seek the Lord that he, that we truly experience life. We seek out all kinds of things to make our life full and good and right and enjoyable and fill in the blank. But it's only when we seek God that we really get to experience life. That's why over and over again, at least three times in the book of Amos, he said, seek me. Seek after me. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 6. Seek the Lord and live. Notice he didn't just say seek the Lord. He said seek the Lord and live. Seek me and live. Seek good and not evil. It's only when we seek him first that we learn to live and that all these other things that we think are going to provide life kind of get put in their proper place. We think people will do it. You know, if only I had that person. If only I had that person. My counseling office is filled with people that thought this person would fix their life. <laughs> only to find out that this person just complicated their life. And they did the same thing to them. We think people will do that. We think an income will do that. We think possessions will do that. We think if only my family was right, we'd do, we think all kinds of things. But it's only when we seek after him and not those things that we get life right. And all those other things just fall in line. So those are the takeaways I got for you from the book of Amos. Do you have any ones I missed? Hmm? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, I was verse 21 of chapter 5. Mm -hmm. It says, I hate your name, but despise your religious peace, and cannot stand your assembly. And that is Easter and Christmas, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you think it's Easter and Christmas? Why? Well, because we've changed uh, the Lord in first in our life. Yep. Yeah, I, I worry about that in my own life. Uh, when we get together on Sundays, can I just tell you, it's really hard for me to worship on Sundays because I'm working. I'm thinking about things that have to be done and, and, and things that, you know, you have to hit some marks here. And when this happens, I need to be here so that this can happen. And I'm kind of working. And so it's really hard to keep the first thing the first thing. Uh, 
But yeah, wouldn't that surprise us? We could sit through a service that we thought was just so uplifting and the music was so great and, and everything was so great. And I wonder if sometimes if God came up and took the platform and said, man, I hate this. This stinks. Wouldn't that rattle us? But I'm afraid maybe that could be true more often than we think. Someone else, a takeaway. Yes. Exactly. It's very easy to get complacent. It's very easy to coast, but you know when you coast, you eventually slow down and stop. You know? You can't coast and get anywhere, but it's really easy to get complacent and just coast. Yes? Yes. Yes. Yeah, revivals, somewhere along the way, revivals became something we went to rather than something we experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what God is calling the book, uh, the people of Israel to, is, you know, you've, you've got all the ritual down. You're doing it ad nauseum. You're doing it so much you're not even thinking about it. It's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to me. Yes. Right. Yeah, when when you see something in someone that drives you crazy, often it has something to do with something in you that drives you crazy. Freud called that projection, but I don't know whether we are allowed to put Freud and right. scripture in the same Yeah. Repentance does preclude revival, and it's kind of hard to rebuild something if you don't tear it down first. And yes. Right, so if, so if Proverbs tells us to trust in the Lord, but we're not taking Scriptural seriously, then we have a problem. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not the stuff about this book that I don't know that bothers me. It's the stuff I do. It's the stuff I do. Because then I'm responsible for the stuff that I do know. All right, we need to go. We made it through Amos. I lied to you last week. I told you we were doing Obadiah, and I forgot about Amos. So we'll do Obadiah next time. So, All right, let's pray. 
Father, I'm grateful for this book, grateful for these people, but more importantly, I'm grateful for how you weave both together in our lives. Uh, God, help us not to just stay the same. I can't think of a, a, a more bleak and, and sorrowful way to look at life than just staying the same. And Father, we all, bar none in this room, need to grow, need to change, need to repent, need to do something different, need to be different. And we often try to do those things, but we go off half-cocked in our own power and, and think we can do it, and we can't. Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. So help us to start by renovating the inside of us, by asking Christ to come in and just completely redecorate do whatever he wants to do in there, and then let that start leaking out through how we act and our behaviors and our habits. Father, we are very close to the people of Israel in the book of Amos. Please pull us away from that precipice and make us different. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.